0: From the Nightmare of Want This is Hell 14 families face evictions from their homes In the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood Of East Jerusalem And Israel's Attorney General is about to rule On whether they can stay in their homes They've lived in since 1948 Or if they'll be kicked out Families once lived in West Jerusalem but were kicked out of there Back in 48 and fled to East Jerusalem Where the Jordanian government Had agreed to make homes For the newly evicted There's lots of legal issues involved Including that the land the Jordanians developed Was owned by two Jewish associations Prior to the building and occupation of the homes But when it comes to the law And justice in Israel It usually does not work out well For Palestinians But the events in Sheikh Jarrah Which led to deadly violence Disproportionately affecting the people of Gaza Who our guest today argues Has become the scapegoat Yet again It reveals something else, something that is behind the evictions, that fuels the violence, that drives so much of the brutality and cruelty we see around the world today, and that is colonialism. The struggle for decolonization still continues to this day, as it is ever since the end of the Second World War. And we'll talk about that struggle when it comes to the recent events in Palestine and Israel in a few when we speak with anthropologist Sarah Emoud, who wrote the Jadalia article, Sheikh Jirah, The Question Before Us, which you can find at jadalia.com. Sarah is assistant professor of anthropology at the College of the Holy Cross. She is a Palestinian American Research Center fellow, of Wenner-Gren Foundation, Fellow and is currently conducting Dissertation research on sexuality Intimacy and settler colonialism In Palestine, Israel Sarah previously Researched indigenous women's Organizing against femicide and Sorry, feminicide and Other forms of gender violence In post-war Guatemala also on today's show, we'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from Hell. We'll share with you what's happening on our Patreon podcast tomorrow, Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time at Patreon.com/slash ThisIsHell. We'll tell you what's happening on This Is Hell next week, and of course, we'll have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, how has your week gone so far?
1: I just want to share a piece of information about COVID that you're not hearing in the mainstream media. <laughs> okay, immunity keep you healthy. Empty test, testing, positive factory, make P love, much kill vaccine, microchip control you in home. Look, you know freedom, no chip in store, no protest. Why? Virus no live long time, fake mask, make pneumonia. USA Bill Gates billionaire test disease, say vaccine at kids, people in world, kill. No in jail. Why? You be modern slave with chip. Why? Vaccine before flu. <laughs> I'm getting all my uh, information now on COVID off of that dumpster in our alley. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what it actually That's says? On a, that was on a sticker in a dumpster in our alley. Wow. Your alley? Your house? And no, the are? one right near, <laughs> right, near our, right near our studio. Oh. <laughs> you're not going to hear any of this in the mainstream media, by
0: uh, I'm just glad that you're going to alternative dumpsters to get your information. <laughs> Alex, I have a story about Mel, the kind of feral bar cat. And it's weird. You had a story today. What was the story that you had about Mel this morning? Uh,
1: there's a Jake Arietta who's a baseball player I had to look up, a bobblehead of him decapitated in uh, the alley. And I wonder if Mel had moved on from rats to uh, images of
0: humans. <laughs> so I came over here on Sunday, and because I had to print out Monday's notes for the show. And we were very ha- happily surprised to see several fully vaccinated, inoculated friends hanging out. So we joined them in the beer garden for a couple of beers. But before we got outside, we were in the bar for a few minutes, and Mel was sitting on one of the bar stools near Pete, the owner of Carrie's Lounge, because Mel loves Pete. That's when a couple customers came in with the most beautiful fawn pit bull. Have you ever heard of a fawn pit bull? It's a color of like a baby deer. It was absolutely, stunningly beautiful and sweet. The baby was puppy mill Uh, Survivor had had Litter after litter after litter of puppies In the bar The dog was leashed but nobody was holding the leash So he wanders over to us Probably smelling Mel Mel sees the dog Starts growling Starts getting himself into a position where he's going to be launched At the pit bull And just try to kill it and Pete tells the owner, hey, uh, you better leash your dog You gotta hold on to your dog The owner explains how it was a very sweet dog Was a rescue from a puppy mill And was just very, very kind and loved all other animals got, ar- got along great with all other animals That's when Pete explained Sure, your dog is great around other animals But my cat is not The problem isn't your dog being a danger to my cat It's that my cat is right now Thinking about killing your dog, so if any listeners are thinking about coming out for a drink this three day weekend at Carrie's Lounge, sure, bring your dog or duck or whatever, but know that Mel can be the sweetest cat in the world. And he will try to kill most living things
1: Yeah, don't bring rats, we've seen what happens
0: (laughs) Yes, more importantly than any of that Alex, what is this week's question from Hell for our listening audience?
1: This week's question from Hell is What secret society are you trying to join? What secret society are you trying to join?
0: The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want The t-shirt, the tote bag, the flash drive history of the 21st century here on This Is Hell The trucker's cap, the winter hat even though, well, if you're listening in Australia you'll be needing one sooner, Argentina You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer to this week's question from hell by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner, following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff goes uber Hollywood. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Again, this week's question is, what secret society are you trying to join? What secret society are you trying to join? We got mail, real mail, actually sent to us in the mail here at This Is Hell 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor Chicago, Illinois 60659 and it's more mail from the Detroit printers who keep sending us amazing prints So far, they have sent us beautifully printed four by six inch cardboard cards with messages that have included progress has its own problems. They quoted P. Funk with for your ass and your mind will follow a series of Joe Biden, which reads Joe Biden is the last sexist president. And another that says that Biden is the last racist president. And yet another one that says. He's the last capitalist president. The most recent card we got from them was a quote from Bayard Rustin, the 20th century African-American civil rights leader. The quote from Rustin is, I believe in social dislocation and creative trouble. They also have sent us a couple of beautiful books, one on printing in Detroit and the other is a people's history of printing. Up until now, I've been referring to them as K.P. Printing because that's the return address on the envelope and my vision isn't good enough to have realized that at the bottom of each one of those cards, it said Kennedy printing. But in the package we received yesterday, they included a letter which explains exactly what Kennedy printing is and where it is. So here's the letter we got yesterday with not just one, but what looks like a hundred four-by-six-inch prints that all say the same thing. First, the letter. They write, Greetings, citizens. We are... Kennedy Prints, a conservative, anarchist, Negro-owned print shop located in the McDougal Hunt neighborhood in Detroit. We are printers. We are not artists. And I apologize for referring to you as artists or on earlier episodes of uh, This Is Hell. If we were independently poor, we would send you cash. But we ain't. So here are some cards you can sell for $10 each. Yes, once they are sold out, we will send more but different. Our friend Mimi Machete Enjoys your podcast They inform Thanks, KP First, Mimi Machete is an awesome name Second, the McDougal McDougal Hunt neighborhood Is on the east side Home of the famous Heidelberg Art installation project Finally, the card we're honored to have sent to us By the great people at Kennedy Printing This time has a quote from Frederick Jameson Author of the classic 1991 treatise Postmodernism or the cultural logic of late capitalism. The quote from Jameson is famous and says, it is easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism. In the background of the quote, there are the words in like this kind of ghostly image that say, this is hell. So we're going to figure out somehow this weekend, we're going to figure out how we can get Uh, These prints to you So you can actually have access to these prints We don't know how we're going to do it yet We don't know if they're going to be at our store Maybe we'll be giving them away as Question from Hell prizes I'm not too sure yet But we're going to figure it out this weekend And we'll tell you on Tuesday when we come back Because we're not doing a show on Memorial Day Monday Remember, you too can email us Direct message us via Twitter Message us via Facebook Or just send us Stuff in the actual mail to this is hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And if you do, we'll likely read whatever you send us on air. And thanks again to the wonderful, wonderful people at Kennedy Prince in Detroit and especially Mimi Machete. Coming up, Sheikh Jarrah, East Jerusalem, Israel and Colonialism. We'll also tell you what's happening on Patreon during our Friday Patreon podcast this week tomorrow, and we will have Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth during this week's Moment of Truth. Jeff goes uber Hollywood. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Again, this week's question from hell is, what secret society are you trying to join? What secret society are you trying to join? The person with our favorite answer uh, to this week's question wins whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want. Your eyewitness to grief. This is how the Israeli-Palestinian situation is always presented as complicated and difficult. A complex problem that seemingly has no solution. But of late, many are saying it's not so complex. After all, once you consider it is one of the many problems still related to Colonialism. Here to help us have a better understanding of recent events in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood of East Jerusalem, sociologist and anthropologist Sarah Amoud wrote the Jadalia article, Sheikh Jarrah, the question before us, which you can find at jadalia.com. Welcome to This is Hell, Sarah.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I want to make sure that I point this out because I'll be mentioning this in our conversations later on. Sarah previously researched indigenous women's organizing against feminicide and other forms of gender violence in post-war Guatemala. So Sheikh Jarrah is the predominantly Palestinian neighborhood in Israel's East Jerusalem. Many of the Palestinians who lived there were once residents of West Jerusalem but were expelled By the Israeli government, the neighborhood is named after Sheikh Jarrah, who was a physician for Saladin, the first sultan of Egypt and Syria and founder of the Ayyubid dynasty, which ruled across the Middle East and the Maghreb from the 12th to the 13th century. Symbolically, does Sheikh Jarrah have a special meaning for the Palestinian people?
2: That's a good question. I mean, I think today what we're seeing basically is is that that it's you know it's being unveiled that Sheikh Jarrah is really a, a microcosm of what has been happening um, in historical Palestine for many years, right? Um, so I think you know as a foundation for considering the situation in Sheikh Jarrah or or any other Palestinian neighborhood. Um, in occupied East Jerusalem or across historical Palestine in this moment, you know, we need to understand fundamentally um, that the conditions uh, of Palestinians um, are really the conditions of an indigenous population that are facing an ongoing, uh, you know, context of settler colonialism. So, So what do I mean by settler colonialism? I mean that Israel is a colonial project that is predicated on a logic of native elimination, right? A project that destroys in order to replace, that, that aims to destroy native Palestinian life in order to replace it with a new settler entity, and a project that is structural and continuous, not an event, right? So I, I don't know how much um, our listeners understand about kind of Palestinian and Israeli history, but um, you know, when we refer to what Palestinians call the Nakba, or the catastrophe, um, the moment in 1948 where 750,000 Palestinians which was about 80 percent of the indigenous population at the time um, were either kind of massacred or forcibly removed from their uh, their homes their villages their territory right and what became the creation of the state of Israel um, you know we as Palestinians understand and the Nakba, not only as this event, this moment in time, but also as a continuous structure that shapes the conditions for Palestinian life in the colony today, right, and for Palestinian life beyond the settler colony as well. So, um, and let me know if I'm going on too long. Within this context, you know, Palestinians um, in Sheikh Jarrah, like Palestinians anywhere, are an indigenous people Who are surviving and resisting this larger colonial logic of Native elimination? Um, And with this framework in mind, you know we can really uh, draw on the insights of other indigenous scholars and activists in other contexts, right? From Turtle Island, from from here where we are now, um, to other spaces across the globe, really, to understand the violence is inflicted on Palestinians, um, their their homes, their spaces across time and across uh, geographic divides.
0: I know that you. Just delved into this a bit, but I would just want to make sure that we stress this. How do we view Palestinians differently, especially from you a know, perspective right. here in the United States? How do we view Palestinians differently when we view them as indigenous people rather than just as people who are victims of colonialism?
2: Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, part of what um, what is important about centering indigeneity um, is that, you know, when we, when we talk about indigeneity, we, we also need to center um, kind of the possibilities for indigenous life for indigenous life worlds. Um, And when we think about Palestinians as an indigenous people and we think about Israel as a settler colonial context, we can really begin to um, link what's happening in Palestine with other contexts across the world, right? So we begin to see that this is not such a unique context after all, right? That the the forms of violences that that we're seeing inflicted against the Palestinians um, and their ongoing struggle across time for liberation, right, um, is is not unique, right? It's it's not uh, necessarily trapped in this, you know, what we in the United States and in other spaces have been sold to believe um, is this everlasting conflict between two religions, right, or two cultures that are kind of fundamentally at odds. Um, You know, when we understand that this is a settler colonial project, um, we understand that Palestinians are, are like many indigenous populations um, who are continuing to resist, continuing to survive um, a colonial project that is is attempting, you know, essentially at removing them from their uh, native territory. And, uh, you know, that is predicated on, on erasing them as a people.
0: You studied, as I was saying earlier, you studied gender violence against indigenous women in post-war Guatemala what are the similarities and differences between the treating of the Palestinian people in Sheikh Jarrah and violence toward indigenous in post-war Guatemala?
2: Well, that's a really good question. Um, And thank you for bringing that up. I I honestly, it's been a, it's been a minute since, um, since I really considered the context of Guatemala Um, and actually initially, you know, when I was uh, deciding to become an anthropologist, I, I had wanted to train Um, as a Central Americanist. And so I was um, attempting to build, you know, with indigenous communities in Guatemala, particularly indigenous women, Maya women, um, who were kind of organizing in the aftermath of the genocide, right? Um, There was a genocide um, where 200,000 indigenous Guatemalans were Um, were killed by state security forces. And actually, it's interesting because, you know, if we look at the history of of Latin America, and particularly Central America, um, we see these longstanding relationships um, with Israel as well, um, where Israel was actually, um, you know, acting um, in some senses to... Uh, provide weapons to provide kind of military power um, to you know governments and and Guatemala in this case in particular um, that help to enact genocide against another indigenous people right um, so there are there are actually you know historical links uh, between uh, these various powers right um, I think you know in terms of uh, some connections you know we can think about uh, you know. Maya Maya people about about indigenous peoples in Guatemala as also kind of resisting um, colonial formations of violence against their people that have sought to remove them from their ancestral territories um, and in, in various various ways um, and in in terms of you know differences um, I think obviously there are a lot of historical and kind of contextual differences um, and uh, I, I could go on and on about this but I'm not sure if I'm uh, making sense here To
0: your listeners yeah, No you are And you can go on As long as you want That's the best part About <laughs> one of the best Parts of our, our show uh, You also, you write that The first time That you heard the story Of Sheikh Jarrah It was from a child Who had been displaced From her home Along with her family In 2009 You write that I was young And admittedly green Anthropologist Spending my first months In the field Trying to comprehend what was happening in Jerusalem. But you also point out that you are from a family who has a home in Termosaya, a village in the occupied West Bank, and that has also been claimed by settlers. So Mm -hmm. how unaware are even Palestinians of the suffering of other Palestinians and the suffering they've gone through from eviction?
2: This is a really excellent question. you know, I'm someone who grew up in the diaspora, right? I was born in the United States. I'm actually a Chicago native. Um, and, you know, my father was, uh, you know, a refugee. Um, he, he migrated to Chicago after going to college, um, you know, in, in another space um, in the United States uh, in the late 1960s. And when he tried to return to his village in what is now the occupied West Bank, um, he was not able to go back um, because of a military order that had basically revoked his identity card. Um, and so, you know, because of that experience, um, I was born into what we call Shatat, into diaspora, into exile, right? Um, and so that disconnection, um, I think, is really. Uh, You know, an experience that I share with many Palestinians, um, not just in the United States, but across the world um, where, you know, our childhood was kind of denied to us in some in some way. Um, And so for many of us, um, it takes a sort of awakening, you know, no matter where we grow up, no matter how politicized the family um, we have, uh, you know, been raised in, has, has kind of, you know, been, um, or educated us into, but to really understand the kind of everyday life experiences of what is happening in various parts of, um, historical Palestine is a sort of awakening. Um, it is a, is a massive learning experience. So when I went back, um, and I had not spent any of my childhood in, in Palestine, um, the first time that I actually visited was, uh, about 10 years ago. Um, and I, you know, I, I, got to really witness and experience some of these realities. I was, uh, I was kind of shocked, um, into, into action. And, and this is the whole reason that I, I changed my, basically my entire academic career to, um, to work on Palestine because of the experiences, particularly with racism, um, at the border. Um, I, I remember, um, you know, the first time that I attempted to basically, Uh, enter Israel-Palestine, I I was kind of, you know, in disbelief at at the stories. Um, But, you know, when you arrive, um, there's a very uh, eerie kind of uh, eerily racialized disparity in the treatment that you receive um, as a Palestinian. And, and you can see this, you know, very visibly from the way that others who are going, you know, for tourism or, or folks who are from the Jewish diaspora are treated, um, you know, right away, um, you're separated from the line at the at the kind of, you know, intake space. You're placed in a separate room, right, a waiting room with other Arabs, with other Palestinians. Um, And then you are led into, you know, basically a security interrogation um, by folks who are asking you, um, by members of the Israeli state, obviously, border police, who are asking you the most intimate questions about your family history, um, about, you know, your, your family members' names, um, and so on and so forth. And, and after several hours of this drooling kind of security interview, you know, many of my friends, many of my colleagues have been denied entry, um, you know, have been denied the right to even enter Palestine, to see their family, to be able to experience what it is to be in their ancestral homeland. Um, you know, and if you are allowed entry, you're only allowed to enter as a tourist if you don't have an identity card. Um, And so it was that, you know, very uh, visceral experience of racism at the border. Um, And the only thing that I could compare it to really um, coming from the United States was was, you know, basically, I don't know if you're familiar with the essay by James Baldwin, where he talks about, um, you know, going to the Jim Crow South for the first time Um, that is what I felt that I was seeing and feeling and experiencing. It was that complete dehumanization um, that I had never fully experienced in the United States before um, that really radicalized me, that really opened my eyes to what was happening in Palestine um, as a colonial situation, as a situation of apartheid. Um, And I could not look away after that.
0: And as you were saying, you didn't you didn't know. You did, were not aware of that visceral sensation of no. racism within the occupied territories. Uh, no, so, I don't, yeah. so this a, a lack of awareness, but at the same time, is that maybe why there, to to any degree, do you think that may be why there is any lack of sympathy toward the Palestinian people, simply because we are not informed? Do you think that if we were right. all of a sudden informed as to what life is actually happening in Gaza, would that really change anything? Because there are a lot of hate-filled people in the world.
2: Right. That's a good question. I mean, I think we are in the moment, or um, in the midst of a moment of a sort of, Awakening, um, there's a, there's a kind of crack, crack happening um, in what has you know ultimately been um, the hegemony of Zionist discourse in the United States. Right, um, the Israeli lobby works very hard to portray the situation in a particular way, um, and uh, and and has been quite successful in that regard. And I think um, you know things are shifting in the United States. We can't just attribute. Um, you know, the kind of uh, break in, in consciousness around, you know, Israel-Palestine to the most recent intensification of, of violence and, uh, you know, uh, injustice um, that we're seeing in a new way on social media. Um, but there's actually been a fundamental shift um, in the United States, right, in this moment, Um, um, around kind of race and racism and racial consciousness. So the shift that we're bearing witness to in the United States in this moment, um, you know, has kind of opened the path or opened the door um, for us to be able to um, better understand the situation of Palestinians in Jerusalem and elsewhere, I really think, um, as as a U.S. citizen. And and I don't know if you would agree with that, but um, I think... You know, there are there are conversations that are happening more in the everyday um, that are, you know, um, kind of illuminating some of these dynamics and and uh, and are allowing us to see things a bit differently. But, you know, whether or not we actually um, act on on our, you know, newly, I guess, expanded knowledge is another question.
0: And you point out that the little girl who first told you the story of Sheikh Jarrah was from the Al-Gawi family. Was, she was five years old at the time. She told you about the yes. night she had been forcibly removed from her home. She described yes. how men dressed in black had broken down the door of her house, throwing her mother and siblings into the street. She spoke in intimate detail about being overcome with a feeling of fear as they were surrounded by hundreds of soldiers and settlers. They're thrown out onto the street and they end up just living on the street in front of this house. How typical is that kind of eviction, as it is called in the media? And is eviction to you an accurate word to describe that experience?
2: Right. Well, I think, you know, with this question of eviction, um, I think as many Palestinians have have pointed out, particularly, um, you know, Mohammed al-Qurd and, and Muna al-Qurd and, and others who are kind of at the forefront of the struggle to um, to save Sheikh Jirah in this moment, um, eviction is far um, to uh, kind of, you know, I don't know. Or, or it's, it's not violent enough of a term to describe what is happening um, in this neighborhood today. Um, you know, the little girl that I interviewed um, back in 2013 um, had been part of one of the first waves of these evictions um, that, that, were, that were taking place or, or what might, you know, more accurately be called forcible transfer, um, or some other term. Right. Um, and basically, um, I was trying to understand, you know, what was really happening, um, to Palestinian communities in Jerusalem. I had heard kind of, you know, broader stories about displacement. Um, and, and I'm not sure if I can, can I, do I have space to talk about kind of East Jerusalem a little bit? Sure. Go ahead. Um, so basically, you know, if you don't know much about the story of Jerusalem, Um, When when Israel occupied East Jerusalem in 1967, the state extended domestic law into the newly occupied territory. And since then, um, the state has really deliberately changed the demographic composition of the city um, through, you know, large scale um, state sponsored settlement of the Jewish Israeli civilian population and this policy of forced transfer targeting the city's indigenous Palestinian inhabitants. Um, So, you know, Israeli leadership has been very um, kind of out front about this, right? They've been very um, public about these plans Uh, that the former head of Arab Affairs in Jerusalem, right, Israeli leadership, um, basically, you know, fearing their position in Jerusalem was unstable in the eyes of the international community in nineteen sixty seven because you know essentially what Israel has been doing is occupying East Jerusalem in defiance of international law, um, adopted two basic principles for solidifying control over what the Israeli state has want has sought to um, create as a unified capital, right? Um, so the first principle was basically to Um, rapidly increase the Jewish population in East Jerusalem. And the second principle um, has really been to to hinder the growth of the Palestinian population and to force um, Arab residents to make their homes elsewhere. And again, these are the words of Um, the former head of Arab affairs in Jerusalem, right, to force Arabs to make their homes elsewhere. So, you know, Israel has been um, quite blunt about its primary objective, um, which is really the permanent eviction and erasure of indigenous Palestinians from the city while simultaneously, um, you know, moving a Jewish population to the city in order to occupy and solidify control over a unified capital for the Jewish state, right? There's actually um, an official policy that's called a policy of demographic balance, um, which which the Israeli state has been attempting to accomplish, which mandates a ratio of 28% Palestinians and 72% Jewish Israelis as a policy objective, right? So we're talking about um, kind of, you know, Public policies, right, um, and the use of kind of bureaucracy, um, uh, this this kind of system of underlying everyday violence um, that is that is operating, you know, through the mechanism of, of Israeli colonial bur- bureaucracy and 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 city planning um, that is really condemning Palestinians, you know, in Sheikh Jarrah and elsewhere, right? There's so many different neighborhoods that are that are experiencing um, similar modes of violence, um, you know, that. Sh- Big Jirah is experiencing in this moment, you know, it's condemning Palestinians to live in this state of constant fear of losing their right to home, of losing their right to stay in the city and kind of relegating them um, to this um, impossible space. Right. Um, So, you know, basically, um, you know, there are all these other policies that work in tandem with, uh, you know, displacement of Palestinians from their homes. Right. And these settler takeovers that are happening that we're seeing happen um, on an everyday basis. Um, There are, you know, residency laws. Right. Um, For those who aren't familiar, uh, when Israel uh, unlawfully occupied East Jerusalem in 1967, indigenous Palestinians were not granted citizenship. Right. They were granted another status called permanent residency. And permanent residency um, is a status that's usually granted to foreigners on long term stay in Israel, Um, and and it effectively situated Palestinians as immigrants or as invaders um, in their own indigenous lands. Right. So so unlike citizenship, um, permanent residency can be revoked at any time um, by the Israeli state. It does not allow Palestinians the unconditional right to stay, um, to be reunited with their relatives. Right it's not automatically passed on to children. So this is why we see um, thousands of Palestinian children who have been born to Palestinian uh, families in Jerusalem, but are living without any documentation status, right? Um, And does not entail the right to um, to vote in national elections. Um, And and this is also a status that is closely monitoring Palestinians' um, or that is, that, is, uh, that is closely monitored by the Israeli state. Um, so there's another policy um, that sounds, I mean, it's gonna sound very Orwellian to, to, to your listeners, but this is a real policy. It's called the center of life policy. Um, and it's a policy that requires Palestinians to provide documents such as home ownership papers, um, rental agreements, electricity, water and tax bills, salary documents, Um, certificates of children's school registration and and other things of this sort in order to maintain their status um, and that of their families, Um, right? So I've heard, you know, in in interviewing um, women in particular um, throughout East Jerusalem that, uh, you know, uh, basically investigators from uh, the Jerusalem municipality who are basically investigating um, their residency status will come and, for instance, visit their homes and look inside the fridge to see if there's enough food in the fridge that would prove that there's actually somebody living here long-term, right? Um, You know, things like this. So since 1967, um, Israel has revoked um, over over 15,000 residency statuses, I believe, of Palestinians, um, which basically removes them from the population registry and and denies them the, the right to return to Jerusalem, to live in Jerusalem under Israeli law. Right. So this is part of the broader uh, context of what's happening in tandem with uh, what we're seeing in Sheikh Jarrah, which is this this, you know, brutality, the violence of actually dispossessing indigenous Palestinians at their homes. Right. Um, And for those who are um, willing and and able to um, commit to these or submit, rather to these rigid demands um, required to maintain the residency status, Israel's development policies um, are are just another kind of layer of the obstacles, right? Israeli authorities have systematically imposed restrictions on Palestinian development in East Jerusalem. Um, You know, 35 percent of East Jerusalem land has been expropriated for Israeli settlement construction, right? Um, Palestinians are limited to building on a very small percentage of East Jerusalem land. Um, they are systematically denied building permits. Right? It's almost impossible to get a permit to expand your home, um, even though you know folks have families who are growing. Right? Um, but but you know, and then they're forced to build. Um, you know, what's considered illegally under, you know, Israeli law, which frequently leads to the risk of home demolition by Israeli authorities. Um, and, and this has happened in the thousands since 1967, right, where Palestinians are, are actually having their homes demolished because it's impossible to get a building permit from Israeli authorities. Um, at the same time, you know, the state kind of strategically disinvests. Um, from basic services for Palestinian residents, right? Um, from the schools, from municipal services—you know, sewage, water, garbage—all the things we take for granted in everyday life, right? Roads and infrastructure—you um, know, you know, uh, you know it, it, these are these are all kind of factors that that work together to um, to make Palestinian life difficult in the city, right? Um, and, and Palestinians will. T- you you know part of this is is in order to make it so difficult that palestinians will want to leave um, the city of their own accord right um you know there's a large percentage of of palestinian jerusalemites living under the poverty line right um and and this is a a status that has um, increased with the construction of the apartheid wall um, which really severed um, several jerusalem neighborhoods from other parts of the city and has really deepened um, kind of, you know, economic, social, cultural, religious, um, kind of separation, right. Separation of communities. Um, so we're talking about, you know, a population that has lived, um, with kind of, you know, very, very, a number of challenges, um, with, with the divestment or disinvestment in kind of all aspects of their everyday life. Right. Um, where, where there is basically very little access to the things that, um, that people need to survive, right? Um, and and what, what we really see, I think, is you know, is, is a racialized divide of the city, right? This is colonialism. This is what apartheid looks like, like right? The ghettoization and the neglect of Palestinian neighborhoods um, across occupied East Jerusalem, right? Neighborhoods that are, are suffocated by poverty. Um, that are that are punctuated by illegal Israeli settlements um, and by Israeli settlers who are literally invading people's homes, as we see in Sheikh Jarrah. Right? We see the settlers moving into the Al Kurd family home and taking it over room by room, literally. Right? Um, you know, uh, you know, disenfranchised zones um, that that then are are depicted as. As, as being plagued by, plagued by lawlessness, right? Um, you know, plagued by criminality. Um, you know, these are neighborhoods that are subject to constant surveillance and militarized policing, right? I, I don't know if you all have been watching the news, but, you know, we're seeing um, this kind of outrageous use of force um, by Israeli police and military. <laughs> Um, you know, we, we see, you know, these, these armed guards on horseback and on, um, on foot kind of dragging people and brutally beating people in the streets. Um, you know, just, just two days ago, there was a video released, um, of a young girl, um, being shot in her back by Israeli police with rubber coated bullets. Um, you know, as she was standing in the doorway of her own home in Sheikh Jarrah, right. Um, um, So, so, you know, what we're seeing is is an indigenous population that is being um, caged, that is being suffocated, um, that is being targeted by military force, um, and and that is being, um, you know, dehumanized um, at the same time. Um, so I think, you know, this really provides a, a bit more kind of context for what we're seeing. Um, so, so you know, these are all the layers that I feel like um, that I didn't fully understand as a Palestinian um, when I was first being exposed to the story of Sheikh Jarrah. Um, so this little girl's story from the Al-Gawi family, um, when she told me, um, and, and she was five years old, and I have a five-year-old daughter now, Um, and, and, you know, she told me about, you know, being woken up in the middle of the night, um, hearing the screams of her mother and her father trying to, to rush her siblings and she, um, outside into safety. You know, she talked about her home being broken down by soldiers, um, with, with, you know, scary weapons, um, you know, standing in the middle of the street with glass on the ground. I mean, you know, a, a child's way of describing things, right, in a very blunt manner. Um, you know, she talked about um, being forced to um, essentially be homeless on the street. Um, and, and her family had nowhere to go, right? Um, you know, she talked about eating on the street and bathing on the street and sleeping on the street in front of her home. Um, she talked about missing her swing set. And missing the lemon tree um, that her mother used to pick lemons from. Um, and 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 again, you know, asking why, right? Like, why is this settler family allowed to move into my home? Why are these two Jewish children um, able to take over my swing set? Right? Why um, is their childhood basically um, more valuable than mine? Um, I think, you know, that really opened up a lot for me um, and it was it was really her story and and learning um, you know a, a bit of her experience um, that really opened my eyes for the first time to these larger processes um, of of violent kind of displacement um, in Jerusalem
0: and you mentioned this kind of Jewish identity that's tied just to this one, Uh, nation state. And you write, as the girl drew me a picture of her home, the Palestinian child spoke of a morning when the settler uh, mother came out onto the front steps to offer her an egg for breakfast. She had woken up a few moments earlier, wrapped in a sleeping bag next to her mother, brothers, and father on the street in front of her home. When I asked her whether she took the egg, she shot me a look of such complete disbelief that I felt ashamed for even asking the question. No, she said she had not taken the egg She had told the woman that she did not want an egg from her table. She wanted her house back. How do you think, I know this is an odd question, but how do you think that affects the people who occupy her home? What happens when you live a life where you throw people out of their home and the people with nowhere to go, live on the streets in front of the house you now live in, seeing that suffering every day and recognizing it by offering food. Clearly they recognize the suffering. It's absolutely horrible and awful what has happened to this little girl and her family. But what can that kind of relationship do to the humanity of the occupier?
2: Well, I think that's a really, really important question, Chuck. Um, I mean, I, I honestly don't know um, whether, whether the occupier sees, sees us as human. You know, I mean, I, I don't know um, what this situation um, feels and, and looks like at a, at a visceral level um, from from the position of the colonizer. But um, but it's pretty, um, you know, uh, I guess, you know, in your face at the moment um, that uh, that there is a kind of fundamental dehumanization happening that allows um, settlers, that allows um, people, you know, among kind of uh, Israeli civil society um, to continue to um, participate Um, in these policies um, that are are violating uh, Palestinians and and Palestinian bodies and Palestinian home spaces and so forth, right? Um, I I don't know if you all have been watching uh, the news over the past several weeks um, and seen some of these groups out in the streets um, calling openly for death to Arabs, um, you know, chanting for, um, you know, Arabs to be uh, killed, right? um i don't know if you've seen some of the the footage that is being aired um with with uh palestinians literally being lynched in the streets right by mobs of of uh, jewish civilians and and jewish settlers um but i think you know what you're what you're pointing to in your question um is is the fact that you know the colonizer is also Dehumanized by this process of, of colonization, right? Um, um, you know, uh, the colonizers kind of kind of loses um, his humanity um, in dehumanizing the colonized, right? And, and what we're seeing um, with these kind of uh you know very outward um moments of anti-Palestinian racism, um, of of kind of calls for um, the killing of Palestinians, of calls for um, kind of eliminating Palestinians from their homeland, um, is really um, a manifestation of that, right? Is really a manifestation of um, of of the dehumanizing effects of colonialism on the colonizer themselves.
0: You also point out that like the gesture of refusal by those who Israeli security forces tried to evict a small but powerful act of rebelliousness that defines a Palestinianness, that refuses erasure, the ongoing struggle of Palestinians to defend their homes, to refuse being violently uprooted from Jerusalem is a reminder that decolonization is not an abstract noun. It is a verb that implies action to what extent is the world still engaged in a global war lingering since the end of World War II against colonization and in support I think of I lost decolonization. lost the end of your question there. I'm sorry, uh, is the it, to what degree to what extent is the world still engaged in a global war lingering since the end of World War II against colonialism and in support of decolonization. Are we still in a 75 year war against colonialism?
2: That's a really good question. Um, I think many would argue, right, that that colonialism never fully ended um, and that we're still um, obviously living, you know, not only with the afterlife of, of colonialism, but also the afterlife of slavery. Right. Um, and, and part of um, what remains is this kind of imperial category of the human. right? um which which we take for granted right this this sphere of universal humanness um, and and again i'm building on kind of the work of sylvia winter and others um, but but you know all of this you know the border the space of the border the militarized border Um, this kind of racial divide, right, racialized colonial divide between a self and an other, Um, these are all kind of products of a particular epistemology um, that came into being um, through kind of European colonial expansion, right? Um, And um, I think, you know, part of what folks are saying is that by, uh, you know, that we need to Unveil this system, right? We need to continue to unveil this system, um, you know, a system through which these epistemologies of what Fanon calls the wretched of the earth, um, you know, those who are fundamentally outside the boundaries of the human, right, are made. Um, so, so in Palestine, um, part of what I'm saying is that, you know. The question of Palestinian liberation is also fundamentally um, a question about anti-colonialism. Um, it's fundamentally a question about race, right? The struggle over Jerusalem and the struggle to protect indigenous Palestinian identity of the city um, is also about kind of racial geographies, right? Um, you know, the question of Jerusalem today the, and, and Palestine more broadly is at its core, a racial question. Right. The Palestinian freedom is about a wider global struggle against racism, against racial categories and against this imperial category of the human. Um, So I think, uh, you know, Palestine, um, you know, Palestine brings into view kind of these larger questions around, um, you know, how do we alter the category of the human for our time? Right. What what is a decolonial project look like in this moment? Um, And I think, you know, Palestine, you know, and what we're seeing, you know, not just in Jerusalem, but elsewhere um, is really the ruins of of imperialism. Right. Right. It's it's the apocalypse. Um, So what do we do with the ruins? Right. How do we reimagine um, the possibility for life beyond the apocalypse, beyond the ruins of a settler colonialism? Um, that is that is killing our people. That is killing the Palestinian people in different modes, um, day in and day out. Mm. And I think that. Oh, sorry. Please go go ahead. No, no. I think this is what um, the youth of Palestine are doing today with this new era of Palestinian resistance. Right? What they're calling the Unity and Hope Intifada. Um, what they're calling for in my reading is, is not just, you know, an end to Israeli occupation um, or even an end to to settler colonialism. Um, it's it's a call for the end of the world as we know it. Right. Um, and that's what uh, decolonization really means.
0: You were talking about the racial differences, you write about how this is a a situation again of white supremacy when it comes to Israel and Palestine. I have seen people argue online that this is not an example of apartheid, apartheid is not the accurate word to use because apartheid is a definition that includes race and that the Jewish people and the Arab people are of the same race. So why do you see them as different races?
2: Right. Well, this is a really interesting question. I think, you know, to answer that, we have to go back, um, you know, back to the kind of foundations of, of Zionism, right? Which are the foundations of the Israeli state and this larger project. Um, I think, you know, Zionism obviously was was a response um, to, you know, this real influx of, of anti-Semitism across Europe, right? Um, and, and the kind of horrific violence of of the Holocaust, Um, but but rather than challenging the Orientalist image um, that excluded and subjugated the Jewish people in Europe, you know, Zionism internalized and reproduced them, right? Um, so, you know, uh, Noura Arakat, uh, who is a, a wonderful critical race scholar and legal theorist, um, writes about how um, Zionism modeled this idea of the new Jew on, on kind of white European values and culture, um, you know, in, in opposition to uh, Eastern cultural markers carried by Middle Eastern Jews, right? And, and certainly by Muslim and Christian Europe, Arabs. Um, so, so Zionism was really a derivative of Enlightenment Europe. Um, and in, in being a derivative of Enlightenment Europe, it reproduced these polarized binaries of a superior um, enlightened West and an inferior primitive East. Right? It claimed that the Jewish people, as a national, um, as a national entity, belonged to the superior enlightened West, um, in spite of their geographical origins in the East, um, and sought to enlighten. Um, you know, it's primitive peoples, right? So so this is a project um, that really um, reified European supremacy, right? Israel's founders reified white supremacy in ascribing a newfound value onto Jewish subjectivity, right? Onto the Jewish people um, and nationality in relation to the Palestinian other. And I think this is um, really important, right? In order for there to be a creation of, um, a kind of Western enlightened sense of self, there has to be the creation of a racialized other, right? Um, so through an assertion of Zionism, you know, the non-white Jewish victims of anti-Semitism could, you know, in the words of, of other scholars, uh, Abu Levin and Baken, um, they could assert a bridge from non-whiteness to whiteness, right? They could identify with European global hegemony. Um, so in its alliance with global white supremacy, Zionism really absorbed all of the racialized logics that were foundational to Enlightenment Europe. Um, and that's why, why I really see this as um, fundamentally um, a, a racial question.
0: One last question for you. We have been speaking with sociologist and anthropologist Sarah Amoud, who wrote the Jadalia article, Sheikh Jarrah. The question before us She is an assistant professor of sociology and anthropology At the College of the Holy Cross One last question for you Sarah And what we do, our final question for everybody I promise we do this with everybody Our final question (laughs) is The question from hell, the question we hate to ask You might hate to answer Or our audience will hate your response It's going to fall into one of those categories So last week the Associated Press They fired Emily Wilder After caving to pressure from Stanford University Republicans who were upset about her pro health Palestinian Activism while she attended Stanford years ago. The far right is going through everyone's social media posts trying to find anything they can claim as anti-semitism and canceling anyone who ever spoke up against the policies of the Israeli government. How afraid should I or anyone be? How afraid should you be of being canceled because of your opposition to Israeli government policies that lead to the deaths of Palestinians?
2: This is a super important question. Um, I have already been canceled, so um, I think you know. For for all of us who are Palestinian, um, you know, we we live with that as a as a possibility that is always there, right? Um, when I was a postdoc um, at Boston University, um, I had a smear campaign waged against me for my um, you know scholarship. In defense of Palestinian rights, and in particular um, against the kind of militarized uh, violence um, directed at Palestinian women and children. Um, and you know, I think Emily Wilder um, and others who are beginning to speak out against uh, you know the violations of Palestinians um, in Jerusalem and elsewhere across historical Palestine, who are beginning to speak out, um, you know, for Palestinian freedom. Um, you know, they are just beginning to experience what we Palestinians have been experiencing for a very long time. Um, I think this is a moment um, where, you know, we have to speak up. Um, I think, uh, you know, the Israeli lobby certainly um, Will be following um, all of us and and kind of you know creating their own um, last ditch efforts to kind of defend apartheid, to defend um, settler colonialism, to defend um, the policies um, of the Israeli state. Um, but I think you know the you know what is the horizon of our of our politics, right? What are we willing to risk? Um, I think you know what we're saying as Palestinians right now. Um, what, what young people on the ground are saying, um, what young people in Sheikh Jarrah who are defending their homes, um, what, what people coming from across historical Palestine and defying the borders um, that the Israeli state has imposed on our people for decades, right? What young people are saying when they're calling for a unity and hope Intifada, um, when they're calling for um, one Palestine, for one united people, for one liberation struggle, Um, is really that there is no neutral position for any of us here, right? Either you are with justice and liberation of the Palestinian people um, or you are siding with the oppressor. And that is a question that everyone needs to ask themselves in this moment. Am I going to side with the liberation of the Palestinian people or am I going to side with the oppressor? And what am I willing to risk?
0: And one thing that we did not touch on, and this I just want to tell everybody, you've got to go check out Sarah's writing. Again, Sheikh Sharrah, the question before us, which you can find at jadalia.com. Uh, Sarah, Sarah talks about uh, rethinking borders and the conceptualizing of borders and what borders mean and how they always lead to exploitation and violence. It's really a fascinating read, Sarah. I cannot thank you enough for being on our show this week.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate um, all of your time and thought and energy um, for for this. I
0: I promise you will not be canceled from our show. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Take care, Sarah. If you like what you just heard, please show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support to see all the ways you can contribute to This Is Hell, including all of our merchandise and a direct link to our weekly Patreon podcast, which you can subscribe to. Right now by going to patreon.com slash Hell, keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash Hell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon, and you get our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams live every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time, and is podcasted at the same place shortly after. It includes a monologue by me that you can't hear anybody, anywhere else, and a classic interview that we currently do not have Online on this week's Patreon podcast. I thought it would be fun and interesting to see what the hell we were talking about exactly 10 years ago this weekend, to see where we were then and how far we've gone since the last weekend of May 2011. So Alex went back and found our May 28th, 2011 episode, The Guests That We Concluded. Hamayoun Porzad, a uh, leader of the network of Iranian labor unions who was touring the United States to build solidarity between U.S. and Iranian labor movements. We also spoke with International Relations, and he was live in studio, by the way. Uh, and we also spoke with International Relations and terrorism scholar Anatol Levin, whose book, Pakistan, a Hard Country, had just been published. And we wrapped up the show by talking to the former National Lawyers Guild president, Marjorie Cohn. Who had just posted the articles The targeted assassination of Osama bin Laden And torture is never legal And didn't lead us to bin Laden Ten years ago we were talking about U.S.-Iran labor solidarity Pakistan and the assassination of bin Laden And how torture did not lead to him being caught Despite what the inhumane apologists And supporters of torture Were trying to get everyone to believe Six years after that show Seymour Hirsch would return to This Is Hell to talk about what was considered his very controversial book, The Killing of Osama bin Laden, which pretty much said everything Marjorie had said on our show six years earlier. So if you want to hear about the assassination of Osama bin Laden, go to thisishell.com and search on Hirsch, and you can find that interview, which is currently available online. Which all means that tomorrow on our weekly Friday, 10 a.m. Chicago time, Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers of This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. We will be sharing our interview from 10 years ago with Homayan Porzad, a member of the editorial collective of the Iran Labor Report and his attempt to build solidarity between the U.S. and Iranian labor movement. Who knew that 10 years ago such a campaign was actually taking place? Well, nobody. As U.S. corporate establishment media ignores any attempt at international labor solidarity, as they were doing back then. Meanwhile, this weekend is Memorial Day weekend, and as Memorial or as Monday is Memorial Day, like everyone else, we will be taking Monday off. This is how returns Tuesday, June 1st at 10 a.m. Chicago time. In memory of Memorial Day, we will be remembering not all of the people in the U.S. military who fought and died in war. Instead, we will remember... All of the rest of the non-military casualties of war that far outnumber military members killed in any war. Rather than celebrating and glorifying war like Fat Tony and Captain Dan will be doing on live TV accompanied by fireworks that likely cause veterans to have horrible PTSD attacks, we will be remembering that war sucks, how little we can control our government's desire for war, and why far too many people in the U.S. of A. still think war is really cool. So tomorrow on our Patreon podcast... At patreon.com slash thisishell It will be a sharing of an attempt of e- U.S.-Iran labor solidarity And a look at one of several days in the U.S. When we celebrate the death and destruction of war But you can only hear all of that by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon At patreon.com slash thisishell In a few minutes, Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth during this week's moment uh, Jeff goes uber-Hollywood Alex, please remind us what is this week's question, from hell, and do you have any more responses from our listening audience?
1: Uh, What secret society are you trying to join? George W. says, The apparently secret society of people who are doing okay. (laughs) Joe B. says, Whichever one Chuck is in. (laughs) It's not really working out for him, I don't (laughs) think, uh, Joe, there. Uh, Joel G. says, The secret society of vegans. I have the t-shirt, just can't find where they meet. I keep trying all the vegan restaurants. What secret society are you trying to join? Austin R.M. says... Readers, (laughs) Readers, Kelly <laughs> H right. says professional musician, and then via DM, Twitter, etc., etc., etc. Adam B says the Babysitters Club. <laughs> Hypocrite Reader says desperately trying to become Eat Farts yeah. 70. <laughs> and
0: then
1: finally, Two Thrones says the illustrious yet elusive Soros front Soros funded cultural Marxists. What did Adam B say again? Adam B said the Babysitters oh, Club. Yeah,
0: Babysitters Club. That's a good one. I like that one. I'm gonna write that down. And by the way, trying to become Eat Fart 70 is going to be a very difficult thing to do. You can still leave your message or your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, email it to us, tweet it to us, but you have to have your answer in now, because we're about to announce this week's winner following Jeff Dorton in the Moment of Truth. Keep in mind a lot of the questions I asked this week, scratch that. All of the questions I asked this week were written while I was high. This is hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line. What?
3: Come on down to the mass grave Welcome to the moment of truth The thirst that is the drink I have friends Contrary to what many of you might suspect I have several circles of friends And you know We used to like to get together in the days before the pandemic and discuss our opinions on world events, as everyone does, and what historical causes lay behind them, what contemporary structures contribute to them, what might be done to solve apparently timeless social problems, what alternatives there are in responding to negative trends in power over people. But all of these discussions must necessarily be peppered with a leavening addition of loose talk, outrageous tough talk, purposely ludicrous polemics, and general horsing around, and it was after one such discussion the first in-person discussion among our intentional affinity family in many months, that a few of us were remarking on our trepidations about the so-called return to so-called normal behavior encouraged by the advent of the COVID vaccines. We tossed out examples of the various annoyances, triggers, and sundry offenses of which our fellow Angelinos were frequently guilty and by which they rendered the pursuit of public activity in Southern California a dreaded misery. Someone said to me, it's amazing what people in Hollywood will stand in line for. I said, like Pink's Hot Dogs, naming a famous spot known for having lines all the way down the block for no reason I can discern because I believe their product sucks. I'm not going to wait in line for an hour and a half for something that takes me 30 seconds to eat, said the conversant, to which I added, and we'll go through you in a half hour. There were a few of us standing around a kitchen, just like old times, and we started batting around ideas for places we might open, hypothetically, that we could somehow make notorious for having long lines of conformist, gullible, status-worshipping people waiting to get into the hottest new thing. We came up with a place called Door. The rubes would wait in line for eons... Then they'd get to the door, the eponymous door, perform some requisite demonstrations of obsequiousness, and then we would let them through the door of door. But door's doorway would lead immediately to the alley behind door. Door would not even be a three-dimensional building, just a two-dimensional facade of a building, just a theatrical flat of scenery. And we'd file the patrons through a corral-like maze, like animals being led to a performance ordeal in a rodeo, and then release them into a remote part of the city. And this idea morphed into the next one, an establishment called Mass Grave. Again, just a building's front facade and an unreasonably long line of rubes waiting to pass through the door of this facade, but each person who passed through the door, would receive a bullet in the back of the head and then a foot in the ass to propel them into the eponymous mass grave, waiting for them, and we'd just keep doing this for weeks until we'd emptied the city of all its pretentious fools and, we hoped, all of Pink's customers would be among them. Oh, how we laughed and laughed about exterminating these hypothetical, worthless people, 20th century Eurasian wartime style, one by one. What other than our own depravity could cause us to imagine such a cruel and inhuman scenario with ourselves the jolly executioners? Even more to the point, how was this way of operating a business supposed to generate any revenue? And further, as long as we were bringing questions of practicality into it, how was our venue meant to generate its chic reputation if no patrons ever emerged from it to report on the wondrous life-changing experience on Yelp? What would be the point of opening Mass Grave, or even going through the trouble of imagining Mass Grave? Indeed, what is the point of anything if the point of everything is to extract complete advantage from it by the most efficient method, because that seems to have become the goal of human existence by edict of the financial dictators on high. We're surrounded, inundated, penetrated by advertising and the commodification of every object, material, and idea. It's sickening. Literally, it has turned us into sick people with valuation fever, seeing price tags on everything. People want to know the shortest, speediest route from A to B. The best use of your time. The problems arising from this state of affairs are desperate ones. The inability to access care for your teeth and gums for your eyes, to access education. What certificate will afford you the greatest earning potential? How do you get out from under debt? Debt is a force that crushes you. We hate ourselves for being gullible customers. We hate our society for being one preyed upon by economic predators ever ready to take advantage of our briefest moment of inattention. Raptors waiting for rodents to scurry from their holes in search of food. So naturally we despise the even more gullible, especially the shallow and gullible, those seduced by the empty promise of a glamorous void, a hollowness covered in a glistening shell. We feel judged by them as unworthy to trespass upon whatever undeservedly exalted establishment they've decided to attempt to qualify to patronize with their custom, and they in turn wield their economic and status superiority against us without even being aware they're doing so. We despise their worship of the talismans of higher consumer status. We despise their belief that higher consumer status exists at all. We despise their reification of it. It just makes our position in the consumer prison hierarchy that much worse. In turn, many of us know that our aforementioned positions in the social hierarchy, however lowly, are still offensively higher than those of a great mass of more impoverished individuals, who may be imagining their own versions of mass grave, visualizing us tumbling limp into the pit. Naturally, we get a chortle from the thought of pulling a grotesque crank that could land Lady Gaga, Tim Allen, Marina Abramovich, Milan Kundera, Quentin Tarantino, or even our beloved manic pixie Bjork, or even the lesser lights from the echelon immediately below them in a pit of corpses reminiscent of the type of tawdry ethnic cleansing from which they seem so removed and protected. There is no question that to carry out such an endeavor and make such a bleakly slapstick crank manifest in the actual brick-and-mortar world would be ethically and morally questionable, to say the least. And a kind-hearted human being could be forgiven the belief that even entertaining such a plan in the imaginary realm and further deriving hilarity from it crosses certain lines. Also, what if some comradely worker one an evening at such a place through a raffle, as happened in the hilarious schadenfreude-inducing event, Fire Festival. This is a possible downside to the plan. There's a remote chance that an otherwise innocent person, freakishly securing privilege by other than the method of having an outrageous amount of disposable spending power, could be caught up in our knee-slapping practical joke. In that case, the person's final thought, no doubt, as they felt the bullet begin to fragment the back of their skull and penetrate their spongy mass of signaling cells would be... Of course. Of course this is how it ends. What was I thinking? This has been the moment of truth. Good day!
0: So we may be seeing you in July. Are you going to uh, Michigan's Pinky Finger for the summer?
3: Uh, I am, def- yeah, well, not for the summer. Uh, I I intend to hang about in Chicago mm-hmm. as long as Chicago will tolerate me uh-huh. until such time as my parents are not downstate getting a checkup or some kind of medical procedure and, uh, and join them up north for a little bit in that Pinky Finger area near Mark. And we... Torch Lake, um, and
0: uh... well, looking forward to seeing you. And uh, that part of Michigan is pretty safe right now. So unlike the place where I will be going right around about a month after that, which will still be in a situation where everybody needs to be fully masked because nobody yeah. up there gets any vaccinations whatsoever. It I really heard is about the that. worst county. am I'm, I'm going to the absolute worst county in one of the worst states when it comes to vaccinations and i just yes, can't think of a better yes. way to celebrate summer.
3: Michigan is the Alabama of the north. Yeah,
0: but that's why they call
3: it Mississippi. Do they?
0: Yes, they do, my friend.
3: Well, i um i haven't checked the stats in the in Antrim County or whatever county i'm going to. I should really figure it out <laughs>
0: yeah, probably.
3: <laughs> but uh, i know Michigan i mean i <sighs> I can't even bear to be in touch with people from my high school a lot of them cuz they're like they're they're literal conspiracy yeah. Q crazy people.
0: Yeah, that's what a lot of Michigan is. All right, Jeffy. Stunning. Yeah. Until next time. What? Stay beautiful.
3: Okay.
0: Live from Land Stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. Alex, do we have any more responses to this week's question from Hell? Uh, yeah.
1: Uh, first of all, producer Alex stands with the people of Mississippi, Alabama, and <laughs> Michigan. Fight the real power, capitalism.
0: <laughs> They're fighting for that power.
1: What secret society? I'm not blaming the working class for anything. What bl- secret society are you trying to join? What secret society are you trying to join? Jay Dorchin says Bananarama. Sal M says, Bowl and Scones.
0: (laughs) That's actually. uh, Who's that?
1: Uh, That was Sal Manella. Okay. Okay.
0: Bowl (laughs) and Scones. Red
1: Red says, The Holy Order of the Unreformed Ska Musicians. (laughs) Old Pal Eat Farts 69 says, The Guild of Bionic Shoulder Reconstructionists. (laughs) What secret society are you trying to join? Joseph W says, President Biden's Incognito Student Loan Forgiveness Committee. Uh, drug Me to Hell says skull and bones all day. Go Wah, wah, wah says Teutonic Knights. And then finally, M50 says, hi, M50. He says full dental coverage. This might not make a lot of sense to people living overseas, but in America, uh, your eyes and your teeth and your ears <laughs> actually are not covered uh, by health insurance. because no. Those aren't really parts of your body.
0: Yeah, exactly. And if you are on, uh, all those people wanted a uh, Medicaid, Medicare for all, whatever the hell they were calling it. <laughs> That piece of that stupid You know, if you want your teeth pulled Yeah, that's great Give give everybody Medicare for All If you don't want your teeth filled and just have them pulled That's a great plan, just do that program So, let's see uh, Which ones, did, what are the answers that I like the most? I really did like uh, Adam B. saying uh, Babysitter's Club, I like that uh, Eat F- Hypocrite uh, Reader saying That he would <laughs> become Eat Fart 70, that was good uh, Salmonella saying Bowl and Scones I like that But who's kidding who? <laughs> The winner is clearly Mike, who was the first to answer. And his answer was, the secret society he wants to join is the Build a Burger group. I'm sorry. I just had to give that to him. Mike, send us your mailing address and tell us what piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want, and we will get get it in the mail post-haste. The answer to this week's question from Hell, my answer... This week's question from hell that is What uh, secret society are you trying to join My answer is Which am I trying to join Because I'm already in the secret society Formerly known as the Boy Scouts of America But I'm not supposed to say anything about that So I won't The apparently secret society I'm trying to join Is Antifa. And man, are those guys secretive. There's no meetings, no leaders, no spokespeople in the news. Do you know how many small towns I drove to last summer because white supremacists were telling me they were going to be attacked by an Antifa army? And I got there and nothing. Very disappointing. I can only assume that Antifa is incredibly secretive, which makes them far more interesting. And now I want to join. And to be honest... This secret Boy Scout society I'm in really, really creeps me out. Thanks to everyone for sending in your answer to this week's question from hell. Alex, do we have anyone scheduled yet for next week's shows?
1: We're talking with the author of a book called Colonial Debts. Her name is Rocio Zambrana, and she'll be on on Tuesday. Because remember, we don't have a show on Monday. Mm -hmm. Uh, But on Monday, I am playing a old uh, best of show that was all about Memorial Day uh, featuring Uh, uh, war resistors and other people affected by war that was pretty good that played in geez 2011 that was a 2011 thing that was a an old show from 10 years ago oh wow so i'm going to be posting that on the patreon probably when i get home today and then i'll post it on the main feed on monday and that's four hours of interviews with war resistors and turncoats and people who were uh Getting in the Way of the War Machine, and that'll be on Tuesday, or sorry, Monday. Tuesday, Rocio Zambrano will be on to talk about her book, Colonial Debts, The Case of Puerto Rico.
0: And then again, of course, always on Thursday, Jeff Dorchin will be back to uh, give us another moment of truth. We start every week's live streaming shows here at ThisIsHell.com by revealing this week's Hangover Cure. This week's Hangover Cure is pathetic begging by for attention by a wannabe British reality TV star and... Masturbation. Thanks to this week's guests including Civil rights attorney Mark P. Fancher Who wrote the Black Agenda Report Article, The USA Immoral, Illegal Irredeemable and Irrelevant to Global Africa's Liberation Struggle Also thanks to Media Studies Scholar Craig Robertson, author of The Filing Cabinet, A Vertical History of Information. Thanks to yesterday's guest sociologist, Spencer Hedworth, author of Policing Welfare, Punitive Adversarialism in Public Assistance. And thanks to today's guest sociologist and anthropologist, Sarah Amoud, who wrote the Jadalia article, Sheikh Jarrah, the question before us. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing today's show and for booking this week's and every week's guests. Thanks to Richard Norwood and Jess Lipka for running the board and everything else they do for the show. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth and Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in Rotten History. Special thanks to Thern Humiston because just because Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, when we will be sharing our interview from 10 years ago this weekend when we spoke with Hamayan Porzad, a leader of the network of Iranian labor unions who was touring the United States at the time to build solidarity between the U.S. and Iran labor movements. And I'll be jogging our memories during this Memorial Day weekend of just how much war sucks and should not ever, under any circumstances, be celebrated. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gaptooth host, Chuck Mertz, producing today's show, Alex Jerry. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon
3: is on my butt. No. Uh, <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. No. And my demon tries to knock me down.